Good afternoon and welcome to the Serious Security Seminar from Purdue University. Our speakers today are Serious Professor uh, Barrett Caldwell from Industrial Engineering and his PhD student Omar El Dardiri. Uh, they work in the area of human factors as it relates to uh, team interaction and information display in network operation centers and security operation centers and so on including NASA, just about any sort of large display of information, different sources, and so on. So that's the subject of our talk today. Professor okay. Caldwell. Thank you. So uh, thank you for having us today. This uh, is actually one of those just-in-time seminar presentations. Uh, we, we finished the slides about uh, 3.05 <laughs> this afternoon. Um, so. One of the things that I w want to talk about, as, as Randy highlighted, is the role of human factors as an important element in uh, team performance in highly uh, engineered settings, including uh, rich information uh, settings, such as mission control, hospital management, infrastructure management for the grid, and I've talked to several of you about some of these ideas. So our presentation today is going to highlight some of the work that we've been doing uh, this past year uh, in the area of uh, information presentation and team coordination for network operation centers and security operation centers. Um, one of the things that's been very, very um, recently uh, popular, uh, both from a research perspective but also from an operations perspective, is the role of human factors in cybersecurity. And, and people are now talking about cybersecurity as an area for human factors engineers, uh, cognitive scientists to be involved in, not just in terms of examining the role of um, threat vectors or something like that, but also the performance of people who are managing an operations center and how do they uh, effectively do their job uh, in what's a, a complex uh, information environment that includes both uh, physical operations and, and physical resources as well as electronic cyber uh, operations which may or may not map onto the physical world the same way. So when we started this project, uh, actually started writing up the ideas about a year ago, um, one of the discussions that we had uh, with uh, Gene Spafford was how do we bring this other aspect of uh, the security landscape into discussing um, how we could do better? At, at security operations and how do we uh, manage a, a wider range of improving the tools that uh, analysts and team leads have, have available. So that's really the, uh, the fundamental emphasis for this uh, project is um, how do we improve information and awareness for task coordination and analyst performance. Uh, and. Uh, Basically, the, this little cartoon that we have is, uh, is a, just a thought exercise of the way that uh, a network operations analyst thinks about their work. And this is uh, uh, from an interview we did at the RSA conference 
back in uh, February in San Francisco. So just as a memento, I made sure that I w wore the RSA tag so, so that you would remember who my, what my name was. Um, so what, what we can see in this sort of environment is that there's a variety of things going on between um, the different uh, tools, teams, um, managing the infrastructure, both the physical infrastructure over here in computers, but also talking about the internet in its very generic state. And one of the really significant concerns is that this is not a uniform organization. It's not like everybody has the same sort of organization of network operations or security operations centers. We're going to call them knocks and socks because that's what a lot of people call them. So some organizations integrate the network operations and the security operations side. Some have distinct teams. Some may, major corporations that that uh, Omar and I have been dealing with actually don't even have dedicated staff for uh, these operations at all. And so there's a, a, a wide range of capability for being able to know what's going on in your center, what's going on in your physical uh, and uh, cyber network. Um, obviously, there's a lot of emphasis uh, for many people on intrusions, exploits, the behavior of bad guys. Um, and there's no lack of these uh, sorts of uh, uh, discussions about uh, exploits. Uh, it seems like every time I turn around, there's some other thing in the newspaper about it. Um, so um, many of you are aware of, and I hope not too many of you got caught in um, the air traffic uh, snarls in Chicago a few weeks ago when there, there was a fire that took out basically most of the uh, Chicago air traffic capability. Um, that's seen to be an arson event. That's someone attacking the physical infrastructure. Um, and in essence, the, the cyber infrastructure is a, a sort of a, a, an extra casualty, right? Um, as opposed to when you're looking at retail or credit systems, nobody's going in and trying to do something damaging to an actual store, but the security breaches are directly focused on that um, physical infrastructure, um, and uh, sorry, the cyber infrastructure. The same is true for um, like the, the ISPs. And you know, every time I think that I've gotten a, a list of the, the credit uh, breaches, I have to keep adding a new one. So, it, so that's why you see the dots on the end because it's like, yep, I, I, I was up, up to date and then they added staples and then there's probably another one. That, I'm not going to talk about that. And part of the reason why I'm going to talk about that, not going to talk about that, is that when you look at the range of SOC events and knock degradation, it's not just about bad guys. It's not just about explicit intentional evil. Okay. Um, but if you look at the, the uh, IU student records uh, problem uh, down in Bloomington earlier this year. It was a security patch that didn't get implemented uh, correctly, or the patch itself was not functional for that for that system, and it and it left a vulnerability that someone, in essence, accidentally published. 
Um, so, so that someone doesn't think that I'm just bashing on, on IU, I also get to have a Purdue uh, uh, a bad bad day. Um, last fall, we had um, a set of tornadoes that that came through the state of, of Indiana um, and basically damaged um, a number of buildings that had network operation centers in them, as well as. Um, power outages, so not just Purdue, but a number of facilities throughout northern and central Indiana and ended up losing their capabilities um, due to just a storm taking out the, the grid, the building, water pouring in. It's, a, it's bad. Okay. Um, really bad days happen when scuba divers uh, come across a, a fiber uh, optics line and cut it. Um, and that can take out international uh, traffic, and, and that can make for a very, very bad day. Um, that happened um, in March of 13. And uh, the United Airlines breakdown a couple of years ago now was not uh, an intentional uh, intrusion, but basically a computer system breakdown, because these are physical as well as electronic uh, objects. So. As we were able to talk about the variety of uh, vulnerabilities, rather than just talking about intrusions, when we were able to talk about the tasks that operators need to do and analysts need to understand about their networks, and what, we were, what we started to find out is how few analysts actually had good access to tools. And the tools that they were looking for were tools that helped them understand what was going on, as well as tools that would help them explain to the rest of the organization what their, what their role is. Especially if you are um, team lead for a SOC and you're spending a fair amount of money on uh, hardware and software and, and all these things, and you're spending, uh, what, $3,000 a pop to go to RSA, and you're taking your 10 person team, you would really want to be able to talk to the rest of the organization about what that buys you. Okay. But there's a, there were gaps in the ability to, to be able to communicate to others in the organization about what it is that the SOC is providing for the organization and what the members of the team are able to do to improve their value. Okay. So I think what the this finally came down to us as a critical recognition um, that in and of itself, lack of awareness, lack of alignment, lack of knowledge of the team performance status of your, of your operations center and the, and the people in it, that by itself is a vulnerability because you don't know what your current state is. And if you don't know what your current state is, you can't effectively prepare or respond or communicate to other people what your state is and what you should do about it. Okay? And we saw two different um, gaps, two different vulnerabilities. Um, lower tier analysts, basically the novices that come in and, the, and they're given usually uh, some sort of incident response or, or something like that uh, responsibility. Their performance is bounded by the usability of the incident monitoring tools they have. Many of these tools, 
and you've probably seen them, they are just continuing scrolling screens of text and numbers that you just watch go by. And if I wanted to put you to sleep, that would be the way to do it, to show you a whole bunch of numbers and letters that, that don't have implicit meaning to you and you're trying to make sense of them and the things that are highlighted are not highlighted in terms of this is about to be a bad day they're highlighted in terms of yes I already know what that is okay that's what the tier one operators have the tier two analysts their performance is bounded by two things two distinct things one is how many complex events need to get escalated to them versus they can delegate tasks to the tier one analyst and the tier two analyst, the team lead, the senior analyst has to also be able to communicate to the rest of the organization about the performance of the of the SOC. They don't have good metrics to talk about that performance to others in the organization and so these are these are real challenges. <coughs> So our project goal and our system description um, is to start to improve the information and awareness for task coordination and analyst performance. And we would like to be able to provide alignment across multiple visualization contexts and multiple time scales. And I really want to thank uh, Mike Murray, um, Michael, who was one of the people that we met for our first round of interviews at RSA. And he was actually making this presentation about um, this is a really hard job and what we do is really important but we need to be able to explain to people what it is that we do. And so you can think about two different um, dimensions, actually two or three different dimensions. One is whether or not an organization has a primarily proactive stance. They go out and chase things down before they happen or a primarily reactive stance, whether or not they wait until it's already happened and then, and then they jump into action. The other one is one that we'll talk about in terms of technical spectrum. So the least technical is basically the security awareness. Um, you know, when you send out those anti-phishing emails, don't, don't click on that. Don't, you're not actually responding to anything specific. You are doing a broad awareness and, and an improvement of your uh, organization's capability to withstand. At the most technical, you're getting into um, basically uh, preventative hacking or, or reactive hacking, um, forensics and incident response, where you really are going into lookup tables and, and uh, uh, managing uh, port accesses and number of packets that went through of, of a certain type and whether or not that makes sense for that port in that time of day. Okay, So you're going from a very general discussion of, yeah, we want to be clean and safe and happy, all the way to, ah, we see this problem or we see this breakdown in these packets going across these nodes at this time. Okay and one can do this in a proactive way. We have not seen very much evidence of people who are doing proactive incident response. Okay. 
do remind me, Omar, if I forget something really critical through here. Okay. So um, as we go through, um, as we've gone through, we've been able to highlight a variety of different um, cut slices that uh, the, the organizations make about whether or not they primarily uh, configure as a NOC or as a SOC, whether or not they have different organizations, how big they are, and how much, if they do do both, how much the NOC and SOC teams interact with each other. Um, and by, I said, proactive and reactive actions, but they're also proactive and reactive standards regarding security about what do we set in place and what do we then respond to after it happens. Okay. And so we have collected, uh, let me, Pat, uh, remind me about that when we get into methods, okay. So um, let's talk about some milestones to date on this project. Um, I should point out that, that we started this project uh, in February. Um, that technically, we, we got approval to start in January, but our IRB approval uh, finally came through while we were in San Francisco. Uh, so that, that was a curious thing of uh, uh, Omar sitting there uh, uh, at one of the breakout sessions. Uh, Can I talk to anybody yet? Can I talk to anybody yet? And we, then we checked the email and, yes, now you can talk to people. Um, because the, as a human subjects uh, a research study, we couldn't use any of the data that we might have collected before the IRB was approved. So if you're going to go through all the hassle to interview a senior tech lead in an operations center, you really want to know that you can use their data. And it was really fantastic, the variety of people that we got to talk to, financial, aviation, retail, um, critical infrastructure, power grid, um, manufacturing, power plants, military operations. So, um, so that was all part of our experience at the RSA conference. And so that's how we started collecting our first stages of, of uh, interviews with both technical folks and I would say the managerial folks. And that's how we started getting access to this information about the gaps between what the uh, managers would learn from their junior analysts and what they were then able to communicate to others in the organization. And I think the most sophisticated state-of-the-art tool that we heard being used for those managers was the pivot table in Excel. Yes. Um, and so uh, we got a number of contacts for future collaboration. As it turns out, this is uh, a good thing because it was actually more than we could we could deal with at the time. And so we've continued to work with people over the summer and fall um, with a project strategy teleconference, and that we're that we've been continuing this work through the summer to develop design guidelines for tools used in uh, knock and sock environments. Um, we've actually had to do an IRB modification because of the additional people that we've been able to talk to. Um, and then we were able to, uh, Omar visited the SOC of a, ma a major manufacturing company. I get to talk to my friends who work in uh, manufacturing and production industries. We've, we've also talked to people at organizations that you've interacted with. 
Um, I should point out, um, uh, let me go back, uh, the third name here, Marlene Proman, is actually an MFA student, Master of Fine Arts in uh, vi visual performance uh, here, here at Purdue. And so she had already done some work in information visualization. And so we're, we're really uh, um, collaborating and, and, and drawing some additional benefit from her on different models of design thinking and how that uh, can be brought into this. And in fact, um, here, th this is actually one of uh, Marlene's uh, drawings, and it helps to, to show some of the, the issue points and some of the, the uh, sources of tension. So, so as, as we were saying, you may have a junior analyst here, um, what we're calling a tier one analyst, that is using a very, very simple brute force incident monitoring tool. That only allows the analyst to make sense of well-defined, previously identified <coughs> exploits or um, aberrations or anomalies. Let me just call it that one. So if that is well-defined and well-understood, the Tier 1 analysts can often uh, respond to that incident themselves. Depending on the quality of the organization and the level of effort that they've put into it, and that's one of the ways that we mean about proactive strategy, okay? Um, an incident that has not been resolved may be escalated to the more senior people. And depending on the, on the quality of the organization, you may have a larger or smaller fraction of your uh, incidents or your anomalies being escalated. So if this is something that the, the, the Tier 2 analysts can resolve and they resolve it, one of the, one of the challenges then is, is how does that analyst then present that, uh, the quality of their performance to others in the organization? So either in terms of team status, okay, how well is my group of analysts doing, or company status. Here is the current business risk to the company, okay? And that's a very different question than what is the probability of access to a particular set of nodes, okay? They don't, they don't have a lot of tools to be able to communicate that business risk or that team capability, okay? The other challenge then is that to the extent that a tier two analyst is spending all their time picking up the phone or having people come in to say, oh my goodness, I need you to help me with this. They don't actually have time to sit back and think more strategically about, oh, I just heard about one of these last week. We started getting a bunch of these and they all seem to have some similar profiles. How do I get a tool that allows me to take those non-routine uh, events that have gotten escalated and figure out if there's anything common to them and turn that into some routine capability that would then be allowed to get fed back into the tools that are available to the tier one analysts. Okay. If you can do that, you also have some additional capabilities of adding to the corporate intelligence adding to the technology adoption, and then actually being able to, to go to white room 
um, knowledge sharing sessions from your experience and then build on that as well. Many people are just too busy putting out fires to actually go and get any benefit from those. So where we've been so far, we've been working on um, a number of different methods, pilot study and case study operations. Um, and at this point, I'm going to bring Omar up to talk a little bit about um, where we are in the, in the project, um, starting with um, the information visualization, because that's such a pretty picture. Hi, everyone. So we'll go back one slide here. Um, so again, I don't want to repeat what Dr. Kahlo was going through. We did this pilot study at RSA with eight different professionals. And as he said, with different backgrounds from education to banking and military operations. And then um, in summer, we did another case study uh, in a manufacturing uh, firm, security operations centers. I got a chance to shadow some of the, uh, actually the whole team. So I did shadow six, sorry, five different people, one novice or junior <coughs> analyst, three senior analysts, and uh, their team lead and the manager of the whole department. Um, I didn't get to, to shadow the manager, but we did, um, I did one-on-one -on -one interviews with all six at the end of the shadowing period. So this is how I did some data collection for the coming results. Um, so one concept I, w I would like to um, give you some idea about is uh, situation awareness. I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with that term or not. No, I see some heads shaking. So um, this is a concept that was developed um, actually by a Purdue graduate student, um, Dr. Ensley. Um, this was in the mid-90s, and it's basically um, describing that in a specific environment, um, the ability to perceive the different elements of that environment and then to comprehend um, those elements into meaningful um, cues then make uh, necessary projection, projections and resolutions uh, to be able to make um, necessary decision-making to manage that, that environment. So later in 2009, based on those, um, I'll, I'll have to use the, the mouse here. So these are the four levels I'm talking about when I define situation awareness. And this is how um, in 2009, the same concept or the same um, um, methodology was applied to uh, cybersecurity operations. Um, so again, perception, comprehension, projection, and res resolution. This was done late in uh, 2009. Uh, so we're trying to apply these concepts um, and use this model to make sure that the tools that the analysts are using to manage and monitor the, their uh, networks um, are actually adequate with these concepts. Okay. Um, so again, I'm not going to go into details because I think Dr. Kalb, um covered most of this, but one interesting finding that we uh, found based on these data that we collected is um, the way the junior and senior analysts actually interact. Uh, so after going through systematic training or whatever education analysts go through, they still need to build a set of expertise to be able to perform their job uh, into the, um, the network centers. And uh, 
through that cycle, they do interact a lot with senior analysts and task escalation, as Dr. Colin mentioned. And, um, and then after a specific cycle, uh, there is always this desire of escalating uh, by junior analysts. They don't want to like keep doing um, late shifts or 12-hour shifts, and they they possess a different set of skills that they want to to escalate into the uh, the organization. So this keeps um, having organizations a, a demand of continuous hiring of junior analysts. Um, this cycle is usually between nine and nine months and two years. Um, so based on this uh, interaction, um, there's always an interruptive environment for the senior analysts from what they actually need to do um, and uh, to come down and help junior analysts on their tasks. Um, so usually um, those type of tasks are non-routine in regards of the junior analyst, however, um, senior analysts when they deal with this it's usually they just keep fixing those errors and go back to whatever they need to do and this misses the cycle of like monitoring the the frequent tasks and trying to make some documentation for future analysts that will be hired in that two-year cycle to use these documentation instead of keeping falling back in the same loop of just interrupting uh, their work the senior analyst work so uh, Dr. Cull ha had previous research in different domains in aviation and healthcare and how to make uh, use of this cycle and how to document uh, this knowledge and set of expertise. So we're trying also to build some tools um, to make use of that. <clears throat> um, so when this no knowledge referencing cycle is missing, there are some benefits that the senior analysts actually get to interact more with their junior analysts and uh, spread their expertise and be aware of what they're doing. However, the bad side would be uh, mainly the interruptions. Um, we were last week in the Human Factors um, Conference in Chicago, as Dr. Caldwell mentioned, and uh, there was a very interesting study that shows that continuous interruptions not only affect uh, the productivity of the person you're interrupting, but also it, it has an effect of the quality of like the final output. No matter, even if you give um, the person more time, if there's no time restriction, it will never meet the, the actual quality of the output if you just have no interruptions. And definitely in uh, sock and knock environments, there's no this luxury of endless time as well. Um, um, so what we're trying to do at this point is um, getting more interviews um, to validate the, the, the findings that we have at this point. Um, also, to be able to perform some goal-directed task analysis. And um, the way the goal-directed task analysis is different than the traditional task analysis, it's um, trying to make a hierarchy or flowchart of uh, the goals that need to be accomplished and the sub-goals and not like how people should do things, but actually how they currently do it. Um, and then also trying to capture the information needed for each goal and sub-goal and the um, situation awareness requirements um, to meet the, these goals. Uh, 
also in progress um, the you know, design prototypes that Dr. Colum mentioned that Marlene is working on from the uh, interaction design perspective. That's also in progress. Let me sure. mention a, a couple of other things, but don't go too far. Um, because one of the things that, um, obviously, as you go through a project and you're trying to figure out um, what have you gotten done and what is, what is still left to be done, um, we've had a, a very interesting set of, of discussions. Well, so one of the things that, that we uh, decided after the great experience at RSA what would happen if we actually presented on this at the RSA conference? Not just because it, it's a, a great excuse to go to San Francisco in February, um, but there was so much interest from the community um, when we were there, and we hadn't even started doing the work yet. It's like, oh yeah, if you do something like that, we would be very interested. We would be uh, very excited about a tool like that. That, that would be wonderful. Um, so briefing the community on the progress, um, collecting additional data from people. And one of the things that, that um, we've had um, initial discussions about were the, um, the challenges, and some of you have probably uh, thought about this, what's, the wor what's worse than failing at, at your project? The one thing that could be worse is being terrifically successful. <laughs> And you know this idea of what what we started calling going product, rather than turning this into a continual research stream, what happens if someone says yes, we would like you to build this, or we would like you to build these interfaces that could sit on top of pick your favorite um, incident analysis tool or or con contextual representation tool. So we, we want to make sure that, that we are thinking about that very strategically. Um, as uh, Omar said, that just last week at the uh, uh, Human Factors Conference, there were a number of contacts because that, uh, be, sorry, that because there is a new set of interests in the human factors of cybersecurity, everything uh, from uh, Air Force Research Lab had some presentations, um, Nuclear Regulatory uh, Commission, uh, some of the national labs had, had uh, presentations and discussions. So, so we're seeing a, a very strong growth in the human factors elements of cybersecurity, not just at the screen of how do we design this big shared display, but beyond the screen, how do we improve the analyst awareness of the state of the network from what we're showing to them on the screen. So there's a real difference between how many colors can you perceive and how much can you figure out um, normal operations, obviously bad operations, and some, some attacks, some degraded capabilities aren't necessarily obviously bad, but they can be just an, enough above or below nominal performance that they could be breadcrumbs, but there's actually not a very good understanding of how to present that sort of information right now. Um, every time I turn around, someone else has started talking to Omar about internships 
and, and projects, and I should feel glad about that. Um, and I guess you should feel glad about that. Sure. <laughs> Um, but, but seriously, what, what has been your experience in interacting with people in this industry, and how has that changed your view towards your dissertation research? Um, so I think one of the most interesting conversation I had in terms of the internship settings was with a PhD uh, alumni uh, also f from Purdue from here, and he's uh, working in Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And his team is focusing on cybersecurity situation awareness. And uh, he's looking at how information that is currently presented, as Dr. Cullen mentioned, like a lot of numbers and characters, and how this is out of context. And the analyst needs to keep digging more information about every specific incident to make sure if this is just a false alarm or an actual threat. So this digging procedure is taking a lot of time. and. Uh, it's not helping the analyst going from level one to level like three and four when we talked about situation awareness to the projection and resolution levels to be able to make the necessary decisions or fixations in, in timely manner. So how to present this information in context first, how to, how to isolate the relevant information from false, false alarms and how to uh, present it in, in the correct context and how to increase automation in, in this sense uh, to help the essay of the analyst. Um, that's what mainly their, uh, his team is working on. Um, and let, let me add in on something, because that's, that issue about automation and automated decision tools is a very popular approach that a lot of people in AI and, and uh, reasoning uh, are going into. When you think about it, that actually, although it sounds like it's taking humans out of the loop and, and making this, them less vulnerable, it's actually separating the decision cycle from the action cycle of the, of the operation center. And so if you, wonderful people, I know you would never do this, but imagine a, a, a lesser security um, software designer decides to create a particular set of tools that highlights a particular type of um, situation as an exploit. But if that's not responsive to the organizational context and it generates lots and lots of false alarms, what's the most likely response that the uh, uh, analyst will do? Yes, they'll turn it off, um, which obviously does not help you in your awareness of, of the current state of the, of the operations. So one real concern that we're having, and, and I'm not giving this part of the project to Omar because he's got enough dissertations and you only need one. Um, but, it, but another one of my students is very interested in the question of how do we trust a big data analytic tool and how do we make sense of a the decision outcome that's being suggested by some hidden layer model that we don't understand and can't effectively query what its utility functions were, what its criteria were. Does that even make sense for us to use to make critical decisions about whether or not do we turn off that port today? Okay, do, do we shut down that server? So one of the real questions that, that 
th this research is starting to uncover is how do we make sense uh, and how do we use automation effectively in partnership with analysts for very, very high event rate uh, situations. So I think we have one more slide or two. Um, yes, one more outstanding, uh, yeah, two more. I would just jump to the outputs because I want to open some room for questions and we only have 10 minutes left. So um, projected outputs is improving the usability of, of those displays and tools that we're talking about. Um, task capturing for documentation and knowledge referencing. Um, improving the communication uh, between different analysts and different uh, professionals in the in in this environment, these are what we're looking at. And um, also, one one last thing I forgot forgot to mention when I talked about the goal directed task analysis is we actually plan to um, do the two different task analysis for senior and novice analysts, and to be able to compare and see how they overlap and what kind of goals they think they're both responsible of and how to improve this collaboration. Um, that's my last my last comment. So I'll just open it for questions in those last ten minutes. So, um, Thank you very that's much. what we have. Thank you for for coming up in such short notice. Um, thank you. Any questions? Um, if it's really hard, I'll make it Omar answer. <laughs> So some organizations, especially governments, like to uh, silo information such that subgroups don't necessarily share all the information to include like network um, attack information. Have you looked into how this effect on analysts not being able to access all the available information might <coughs> negatively or positively affect their job performance? Yeah. Uh, actually, we have had some of those discussions. Um, and without going into much detail for some obvious reasons. Um, one of the challenges seems to be how do you structure a lessons learned environment so that you can share common elements that don't highlight um, project specific or activity specific information, but you can share more general patterns in a less restricted way. This is both organizationally and technically difficult for, for some groups to work with. So we are trying to figure out what, what does a lessons learned uh, um, repository look like. Um, I'm, I'm not aware of anybody who's done a very thorough job of that in the cyber operations world. Um, so I'm not quite sure how far we are away from that, but it, it is a discussion that we've started to have. Yes. Make sure this works. Um, it's, it seems to me that part of the challenge that these knobs and socks have is they're very IT-centric. The impact of their success or failure impacts the corporation or institution as a whole. <coughs> I'm wondering if you're seeing limitations to what they do predicated upon who they report to. And maybe 
my folks should say, you know, really this should be a direct report to operations because there might be decisions like, you know, maybe we should quit taking credit cards from this part of the world until that issue is resolved. And that's a serious business decision. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you want to talk about some of the, the interview discussions you had with the, the famous pivot table tool? Yeah. Um, there's something very similar to what you're saying is when I went to this uh, manufacturing sock, they talk about like people in um, in actual manufacturing settings and how engineers just decide on buying new tools that makes the system more vulnerable, and then the the sock team or the security team is aware of this after the actual purchase happened. So this miscommunications. Um, puts a lot of load on the SOC team trying to secure this new environment or this new technology that they're trying to implement. And it would have been much better to like know in advance maybe they can like make previous assessments or feasibility studies on how maybe the other technology is better and it's doing the same uh, set of tasks that they need. Uh, I think that that's like, so uh, reporting, I think back and forth is also uh, there's a very weak link in, in that perspective, yes. And I would say conversely, as you said, a lot of these uh, SOC teams are very IT-centric. So they have trouble translating what they do into a business case. So, so why this is worth a certain amount of the organization's after-tax revenue. There's, there was a Dr. Ponemond that spoke here. Mm -hmm. And with the help of IBM and their large clients around the world collect a lot of cost accounting information on the consequences of different breaches and different types. Now, whether they can actually translate that in some form or fashion <coughs> to a competitive advantage, mm -hmm. if it's done well, would be a, a line of thought. I'd like to, I'd like to see that, that reference because I think that could help some of our, our, our tool design. But I don't recall anybody that we talked to actively being aware of that sort of business case. Again, they're very IT-centric. Yes. <laughs> um, so in, in the spirit of um, lessons learned and not being a clear depository of information that can be shared, um, is there a place where organizations can look for intelligence to move, to move into that proactive stance versus being introspective. The, I feel like you've just handed me this, this juicy <laughs> little thing. Because <laughs> I, ideally, um, I, I think a, a nonpartisan, uh, unbiased uh, research and uh, education facility would be excellent for that. Um, and if one just happened to exist in a, in, in a visible and well-recognized university um, with a, a visionary leader, that, that could... Hey, it's serious. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. <laughs> I admit, that's what we do. That, um, and, and that would be an, an exceptionally powerful capability. And it's kind of like uh, the way the semiconductor uh, industry used the uh, universities to project capabilities for technology development. Any other questions? So are we, are we supposed to just start 
singing or telling jokes for the next <laughs> 130 seconds. Um, but no, th thank you for attending. It, again, um, if you have ideas or conversations or or experiences or access to a center that you would be willing to share with us, um, that would be very, very helpful. Um, we are uh, trying to figure out what our next steps will be. Um, n not just the, oh yeah, further research is necessary, but th there are at least three or four interesting directions that this project could take. And do you want to close out with any, any mention of where you see this going for your dissertation and beyond? Um, say again one more time. <laughs> Do you want to be my grad student forever? And if not, <laughs> I mean it's um, it's pleasure working with you, but no, not forever. No. <laughs> so so what happens next? Uh, maybe a prelim this semester. No, no, no. After the graduation, what oh. what does this dissertation do for you? What does this research open up? I think it, open it opens a um, new field for me, like working in, in IT. I didn't think of this. Uh, working like in information security from an industrial engineering degree is kind of different and new. So very exciting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So thanks again. Thank and, you very much. Uh, good luck with the rest of the semester. Thanks. Enjoy putting